Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Hey y'all, let's dive into this week's podcast, which is a little bit of a detour, but I have been wanting to share my school experience with you all for a long time. I think it is so important for all of us to think about what school was like for us. We all have a school story that is very different from the person sitting next to you. And every single kid we're working with or raising is living their school story right now. So I'm going to dive right in, share some things you don't know about me. And if you want the full effect, go on over to learnwithdremily.substack.com because my blog this week is full of pictures from um, things relating to my schooling and all the things I'm going to mention today on the podcast. So Let's get started. So when I work with parents who are raising neurodivergent kids, I often ask them, so what was school like for you? We all have an answer to this question, but it's hard to sum up 13 plus years of learning in one conversation. I'm really just interested in a parent's gut reaction to this question. Some freeze up immediately. Some appear overwhelmed and give me a look saying, how much time do we have? And some just wonder how this question is even relevant to raising their child. The reason I ask parents what school was like for them is twofold. One, what worked or didn't work for us in school informs how we feel about parent-teacher collaboration now. And two, I want parents and teachers to realize that the child in front of them is living their school story right now. How we respond to their needs and encourage their strengths becomes a part of their story. So think about what school was like for you. And today, I'm going to tell my story first. Okay, so I always liked school. I mainly liked school because I had the skills to stay organized. And as long as I had my trapper keeper and a colorful array of gel pens, 
I felt very in control of my space and of my day. From a young age, I wanted to be a teacher. My mom was an English professor, and later she was a school administrator, and I would occasionally go with her to work on my teacher work days. I would sit on the floor coloring while she taught college English classes. I remember thinking that sitting around talking about stories looked like fun to me. I liked stories. Judy Bloom and the Babysitter's Club were my favorites at the time. I lost my love of reading, though, somewhere in around middle school, and I didn't get it back until my junior year of high school. I think this had to do with starting to get asked to read stuff that I just really wasn't interested in, and I also started realizing that I couldn't read as fast as my classmates. But let me back up. The first thing you should know about me is that I was four years old when I started kindergarten. I have a September birthday, and the age cutoff for the local public schools at the time was September 30th. I was always smaller than my peers, which was socially okay because I was a girl, but I did get noticed as quote-unquote smart because I guess my age surprised people. As I got older, my age kept surprising people, and I think I kind of liked this attention. I was 13 when I started high school and 17 when I started college, and I was 21 at college graduation. I was 26 when I finished my doctorate, and then I got repeatedly stopped in the hall for my hall pass when I was working as a school psychologist in high school that first year of my career. At this point, I really can't imagine my story being any other way, but I do think that being young for my grade impacted me. I think it made me feel that I always had something to prove. And while some saw me as smart, there were parts of school that were pretty hard for me. I didn't understand much of chemistry and physics, and I somehow figured out a way of graduating from high school without ever taking precalculus. I learned to lean into my strengths, which were following the rules, staying organized, and getting really good at being a student, otherwise known as just being compliant. But what I know now that I didn't know back then is that I was experiencing more anxiety than my classmates. Over time, my organization skills and my compliance turned into perfectionism, so I learned how to avoid feeling wrong about anything. I remember feeling socially anxious for the first time in second grade when I was too scared to be wrong in front of the class. It was hard for me to understand how everyone appeared to be just fine raising their hand and talking about what they thought like it was no big deal. I started to fake being engrossed in my notes in certain subjects, avoiding eye contact with the teacher because I just did not want to get called on. But that only worked sometimes. In third grade, I tried looking at my neighbor's paper on a spelling test and was quickly reprimanded by the teacher. Just one comment from my teacher was all it took for my anxiety to spike, and I never did that again. In fourth grade, I'll never forget losing the class spelling bee on what I thought was a really easy word because my mind went blank. I didn't know then that that's what anxiety does. It hijacks your smarts. Soon I learned that I preferred singing to talking. I'm not sure when I figured out that I could sing, but by fourth grade I knew. That fall there was an open audition for being in this children's chorus of a local production of Hansel and Gretel. All we had to do was sing a song for our music teacher. Anyone could do it. I wanted to, but I couldn't bring myself to sign up. On the final day of auditions, which were really for anyone who had been absent, and I, of course, had not been absent. I had just been anxious. I raised my hand 
with all my courage, and my teacher gave me a pass to go see the music teacher. What in the world was I going to sing? I thought to myself as I walked to the music teacher's office, which was actually a closet, I hadn't prepared anything. I hadn't even told my mom I was doing this. So I sang the Star Spangled Banner and experienced my first musical success. I performed in Hansel and Gretel at the largest theater in the city for the next two holiday seasons, and I was hooked. I didn't feel any anxiety when I was singing, even on stage in front of thousands of people. I wanna say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The Regulation Roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the Reframing Behavior Worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com tracker to get started. My anxiety intensified in late elementary school and middle school, and I had lots of chronic gastrointestinal issues that no medical doctors could solve. I now know that this was my gut responding to untreated anxiety. I treated my anxiety with singing and being a quote-unquote good student to avoid negative feedback. Thankfully, show choir was a big thing in the 1990s, and if you want to see a picture, head over to my Substack. Show choir became my life in middle school and high school, but I continued being a teacher-pleasing good student to keep my anxiety at bay. Looking back, I, I know how fortunate I was to have had the executive functioning skills to mask my anxiety within our traditional education system. My good student status was challenged in high school with science, math, and AP classes. It was at this level of school that I really started to feel like a slower reader. This whole skimming thing that people talk about when they read made no sense to me. I couldn't comprehend what I was reading if I didn't read it at the pace with which I talked. Interestingly enough, I talk fairly quickly, but that still wasn't fast enough to be called skimming, I don't think. So Cliff's Notes became my friend, not because I was slacking, but because I used them to keep up with the curriculum. But I loved writing. And sometimes classes move too fast for me to keep up with all the reading, but I love to write. My junior year, I dropped out of AP U.S. History because it was way too much reading for me. That same year, though, I loved my AP English class because I discovered that I loved human stories of hardship and healing. We read F. Scott Fitzgerald, Kate Chopin, and Zora Neale Hurston. 
I was hooked on the human experience. I hadn't yet discovered psychology and wouldn't for a few more years, but I didn't need Cliff's notes to make it through the novels I read that year. Senior year of high school was a different story. AP English was filled with Shakespeare and old English texts that were not engaging to me, mainly because they were hard for me to comprehend. Now, remember, my mom's an English professor. She loved this stuff. I was supposed to be good at it, right? It's in my genes, right? Well, I didn't like it, but the good student in me certainly kept trying. I made a two on the AP English exam that year. I later went on to receive a bachelor's degree in English, so I love telling high school students about my two on the AP English exam. While I continued to be a good student, tests gave me a lot of anxiety. Give me an open-ended exam any day because I can write paragraphs proving my knowledge to you, but I will second-guess myself and freeze up over a multiple-choice question. I took the SAT three times and hoped and prayed that my combined score was enough. I had all the other makings of a good college applicant, complete with a weighted GPA over 4.0 and loads of extracurriculars, but my standardized test grades were only okay. Spring of my senior year, I was waitlisted at my top choice. However, not only did I eventually get accepted there later that spring, I went on to earn two bachelor's degrees and a doctorate from that same university that had waitlisted me. As we know, learning is not just about test scores. So my most pivotal moment came in college when I was studying abroad in Oxford, England. Since I was so sure I was going to be an English teacher, like my mom, I had traveled that summer with a group of fellow English majors from my university to live as a student at Oxford University to take Shakespeare and 18th century poetry courses. Now, as you recall, Shakespeare was not my favorite, but as the good student that I was, I kept checking the boxes that I needed to receive that bachelor's in English. At this point, I was still an English major really due to my love of female writers, but Shakespeare and anything resembling Beowulf were a thorn in my side. So I thought maybe if I immerse myself in the history, I will understand it better. Well, I read Shakespeare. I visited Shakespeare's birthplace. I was a groundling at the Globe Theater in London. I sat so close to the stage at Richard II that Rafe Fiennes was nearly spitting on me and I still didn't like Shakespeare. So not only that, but I just couldn't comprehend or remember any of the quotes that we were being tested on. Though I had a wonderful time in Oxford and met some amazing people who definitely really love Shakespeare, I found myself at a crossroads. I remember calling my mom from Oxford in tears about this realization that I just could not be a high school English teacher because I cannot teach something that I don't like. I don't know what my mom said, but I remember her being supportive and making me feel like I didn't have to have it all figured out yet. And that's exactly what I needed to hear because I thought every good student absolutely had to have it all figured out. At this point in undergrad, I was nearly done with my English degree, so I decided to stumble through the rest of British literature coursework. However, by then, I had also taken my first psychology class, and I was also hooked, kind of like I was with music. This was the science of human stories. This wasn't chemistry or physics. This made sense to me. Everyone is different. Everyone learns differently. I'm not less than because I can't show what I know on a test. It's just my anxiety. I think many people come to psychology due to an interest in figuring out themselves or someone in their family. 
For me, psychology was the first time I was asked to hypothesize, to not do what was asked of me, but to do what I thought would happen in any given scenario. Discovering psychology helped me begin loosening my hold on the perfectionism of being a good student and finding the way that I learned best. This didn't stop anxious me from keeping my options open, of course. Anyone with anxiety will tell you that making decisions is hard. So naturally, I applied to both psychology and teaching master's programs. And at the 11th hour, my senior year of college, I decided on school psychology because I loved learning about learning. I also think underneath it all, I wanted to know all I could about the school experience. I wanted to pull back the curtain on why we teach kids the way we do and how to help those who struggle with the way our culture is organized traditional education. There's so many things I didn't have to struggle with in school. Even though I attended public schools and an affordable university, I had opportunities to travel and learn at camp in the North Carolina mountains every summer. I had a strong attention span, organization skills, and I was able to write everything I was thinking about, even though I couldn't always say it on command. And I had music. Music was my respite from anxiety. From a young age, I've known the power of listening to the story of the person you're talking to and then weaving it into the context of the problems you're solving together. That's my favorite part of my work, being a detective to figure out the problem and helping us all come to solutions that will benefit the student and not the system. It's easy to get discouraged about how slow systems take to change, especially in publicly funded education but there is power in the relationships on the ground in a classroom. That's where the change can happen. Parents can help teachers feel seen, teachers can help students feel seen, and students will one day become the parents and the teachers answering the question. So what was school like for you? This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.